It is an honor to be invited to join you all here this morning. As someone who fights for a more ethical federal government, I couldn't imagine a more thrilling opportunity than to be with you all here this morning in this historic church and discuss this very subject. I've been with my organization, POGO, for nearly 30 years. We were created in 1981 by Pentagon whistleblowers concerned about wasteful spending and weapon systems that didn't work and that were not safe for the men and women we send to war. But what we soon found was that such problems were not unique to the Department of Defense, and we expanded our focus. Since then, POGO has worked to uphold basic constitutional principles by demanding a more ethical, accountable, and effective federal government. First, I am genuinely nonpartisan. I do not believe either party has a monopoly on ethics, either in upholding them or in violating them. Ideally, each party and every politician should believe in public service that benefits our citizens and should reject the temptation to use any office for personal or private gain. But the tendency to abuse power is universal. Ethics in government goes beyond what some consider to be nitpicking rules. Financial disclosures, avoiding conflicts of interest, acting impartially, being truthful and honest are systems and values in place to increase the public's confidence in the integrity of government. But my goal is not to increase people's trust in government. My goal is to have a government worthy of that trust. As our board member, Morton Mintz, who some of you might remember as a legendary Washington Post reporter, taught me, simply telling the truth about your wrongdoing is not tantamount to being ethical. To evaluate ethical conduct, I ask you to consider not simply the acts of individuals in government, but also how those individuals make up the systems that form our government. How does our government represent our interests, both at home and abroad? Fundamentally, does our government operate in the best image that our founding fathers expected of us when they established the Constitution? We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. The year after I graduated from Smith College, I was able to sit on the college's board of trustees. It was the mid-1980s, and big institutions were struggling with whether and how to deal with the South African apartheid regime. The Smith student body took over College Hall in an act of civil disobedience to demonstrate to the trustees how seriously they needed our college to take an ethical stand and stop investing their tuition dollars in that racist government's uh, uh, economy. I came back to campus to be the trustee emissary to those committed students. I'll never forget a conversation I had with a fellow trustee one night during the crisis. He was a Reagan appointee at the time, and he reflected the prevailing common wisdom from Washington. I raised the obvious arguments of how it was important for the United States not be on the wrong side of history, and that these students represented the best values that our country was founded on. Of course, history has proven that the students were right. But at the time, he scolded me and told me that the students and I didn't understand. 
that it was in our national security interests to support the South African regime because of the essential mineral resources unique to that country. I challenged him to explain how could it possibly be in our national security interest to prop up a racist government that in no way reflected our democratic values? And you know what? He literally had no answer. I don't know if I changed his mind that day, but after a few months, the board reconvened and voted to fully divest from South African investments. Smith was part of a wave of private institutions across the country that decided to put their ethical principles above potential financial gain. As a 23-year-old, I learned that conventional wisdom is sometimes dead wrong and that it is sometimes necessary to remind ourselves what really matters. But the U.S. government's policies towards South Africa did not change without being pushed by private institutions that led the way. We cannot wait for our government to reflect our values. We have to take the lead. A similar opportunity has recently presented itself with our government placing arms sales above human life. What will our government do in this new instance? And what will we do to take the lead? Over the past half century, Washington has gradually normalized and even legalized flatly unethical behavior. The use of money by individuals and organizations to skew public policy away from the common good toward private interest is corrupt. It is also largely legal. Our public policy is increasingly designed to benefit the already wealthy and politically powerful at the expense of those who can't afford to hire lobbyists who are increasingly being left behind by our policymakers. Legalized corruption has seeped into every corner of government, from the undue influence of campaign finance to the revolving door between the private sector and the government and back and to other types of influence peddling. One of the eulogists for President Bush this week was former Senator Alan Simpson. His famous wit is helpful for us today in his reflection of what has become, I fear, the typical Washington approach to ethics. His take was, did you know that quid pro quo is Latin for, holy cow, what a coincidence. <laughs> and I cleaned that up a bit since we're in a church. <laughs> We are living in extraordinarily troubling times. The Trump era's most obvious and glaring new challenges to ethics is the self-dealing culture of conspicuous consumption and CEO-style opulence that has settled into Washington. To see public servants spending our tax dollars on private jets, 31,000 dining sets, and $43,000 soundproof booths for their offices is distasteful but in truth, our existing laws and rules largely prohibit these excesses. But as I've said, more important forms of self-enrichment and self-dealing are shockingly legal. But even if every public official in Washington today followed every ethics rule, I would argue that we still would not have an adequately ethical government as long as public officials are denying people, our people, their inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is a point former George W. Bush ethics advisor Richard Painter made to me early in this administration, and it really stuck with me.
Ethics are more than check the box exercises. They are how we show our commitment to our values. So what do we see when we look at government today through the lens of ethics? We see local police regularly shooting unarmed people of color and our criminal justice system imprisoning people with life sentences, even executing them without adequate access to legal representation or due process as is required by our constitution. We witness daily in the news our ICE and Border Patrol officers separating families at the border. These unethical abuses of power are only becoming more prevalent with the backdrop of a White House that remains silent as hate crimes increase in some places by more than 40%. How do our values inform the choices made through our budgeting process, which is perhaps the clearest expression of our policy priorities? We can see the results of corruption in those priorities where half the money appropriated by Congress is spent on the Department of Defense, the agency responsible for fighting our seemingly endless war with no accountability for outcomes or spending. How does this happen? Here's a clue. Last month, POGO released a database of the hundreds of people who passed through the revolving door from the Pentagon to defense contractors. Nearly 90% of those people had become industry lobbyists. Now those who defend the practice claim their expertise in national security means they can only work in this sector. But the roles they took on are as influence peddlers among their former government colleagues. As someone who was mentored by Pentagon whistleblowers while I was a young intern in Washington, even I was shocked to discover the time Congress transferred funds from buying much needed night vision goggles and scopes for the troops in order to buy overpriced and dangerous aircraft after heavy lobbying by that manufacturer. While lobbyists were influencing Congress, the troops literally had to buy their life-saving gear out of their own pockets. And we now hear senior policymakers suggesting deep cuts to our safety net of Social Security and Medicare in order to pay for further defense outlays. We must ask ourselves, are these our country's values? Such decisions tell us the truth about our country, and there are many other examples. Our policies continue to unduly benefit other powerful sectors of the economy, such as the extractive industry, again, without consideration for the public costs to our health, economic impact, or global survival. Just this week, my organization exposed how the oil and gas industry convinced the Interior Department to roll back post-Deepwater Horizon safety standards, jeopardizing the lives of workers, the environment, the economy, and even the industry's own pockets. Let us not forget the Deepwater oil spill killed 11 people, injured 17, and spilled the equivalent of over 21 Exxon Valdez-sized spills and cost BP $65 billion. The opiate crisis has also been exacerbated by the same legalized corruption. Undue pharmaceutical industry influence over FDA advisory committees puts unsafe drugs on the market. The revolving door between the DEA and giant pill mills allows former DEA agents to teach drug companies how not to get caught flouting the law. As a result, in 2017, nearly 30,000 people died from overdoses from synthetic opiates. We have turned the government's public safety role on its head. To return to a point I made earlier, 
insistence on ethical public service is not nitpicking. War, environmental catastrophe, and mass addiction are not trivial issues. Sometimes it's doing nothing at all that facilitates unethical behavior. Reasonable conversations about gun safety and the Second Amendment are stifled because of deference to campaign contributions from the NRA. The cost to public health caused by inaction is obvious. When facing evil, inaction is fundamentally unethical, whether it is remaining silent as our tax dollars support atrocities abroad such as in Yemen, or minimizing the gruesome murder of a journalist as a reasonable cost of doing business. Doesn't that false choice sound a lot like the man who told me apartheid was the price we had to pay? When personal, private, and political gain motivates public policy more than advancing the common good, ethical behavior and standards are seen as mere obstacles to progress rather than a precondition for governing. And at the individual level, one of the more frequent ethical dilemmas I work with is helping people decide whether to say something about wrongdoing that they've witnessed, thereby putting their career and possibly much more at risk. My organization was founded or created by an Air Force whistleblower, Ernie Fitzgerald, who was on Nixon's enemy list because of his truth-telling. But the dilemma of whistleblower is perennial. The Obama administration repeatedly abused its power under the Espionage Act to prosecute whistleblowers. Since I began this work years ago, public perceptions have changed. We are more likely to see whistleblowers as morally courageous heroes than as narcs and snitches. That's a positive trend, but it's still far too common that the government's impulse is to retaliate and silence the truth teller. I suspect everyone in this room has or knows someone who has faced the decision of whether or not to stand up to wrongdoing and understands how grave the consequences can be if there's inadequate protection afforded the person who steps forward. But protection is not the only obstacle. I've seen firsthand the many reasons people are afraid to cross over the Rubicon. Most remain silent not because they're afraid of retaliation, but because they have little faith that coming forward will solve the problem. If potential truth-tellers had more confidence that their ethical resistance would matter, more would come forward. If we expect accountability from government, then shaping a favorable environment for reform is our collective responsibility. This new era did not appear out of thin air. It is, in a very real way, a product of our own inaction as citizens. We have become complacent and cynical and assume that a certain level of corruption is natural or inevitable in American government, that it can be winked at. We got here by accepting far less from our leadership than an active citizenry would tolerate. Too often we turn a blind eye to the self-interested or amoral behavior of candidates and officials from our own party in order to advance a political agenda. And when we do, we are all making the decision that ethical behavior is simply not as important an essential feature of our social contract. We're assuming that ethical failures, because ethics really aren't as important as everything else, maybe it's that litmus test issue that we care most about, or it's blind political party loyalty. But somewhere along the line, we've come to accept 
the notion that a person taking an ethical stand is quaint and irrelevant to modern life, relegated to the fictional Mr. Smith goes to Washington. But government can be a force for good. But patterns of bad behavior by individual bad actors results in a breakdown of the entire system. So where do we go from here? How do we return to a path toward that more perfect union? Demonizing people we disagree with is not the answer. And pursuing bipartisanship as a virtue unto itself is also a false path. But we will not be able to advance to a genuinely ethical government until we reach beyond our small comfortable tribes. Cable news, social media, and the political parties themselves benefit from the divisiveness. They benefit most when we hate each other. They're growing their audiences and membership and making money off our hate. We must be more discerning about those institutions that are playing a large role in undermining integrity in government. We need to hold all our elected, appointed, and career government officials accountable for meeting a higher ethical standard. Let's not give up on them. Let us instead reward those people who demonstrate that they regard public service as a privilege that demands integrity with our loyalty and support. This congregation is uniquely situated to be moral leaders. The national conversation about ethics and government needs to change radically. In order to make this change, it will require all of us to remain active beyond simply voting. We need to start recognizing and articulating ethical violations as corrupt behavior and hold those actors accountable by withholding our business, votes, and public legitimacy. We've only started to see scrutiny of police departments around the country now that officers who have killed innocent citizens are going to jail for it. That's real accountability. And it gives us a reason to begin to trust those institutions again. We need to hold our national public officials accountable as well. This will require paying attention to our leaders while they're in office. Who are they really serving? Do they embody our ethical standards. We need to become more active citizens between elections. You voted for them, now you need to pay attention to what they do. Without serious reform and engagement from more citizens, our modern democracy will not, or cannot, advance our country to becoming that more perfect union for all Americans. We need to remember the lesson learned from the anti-apartheid fights. Our government did not lead. Our government followed the lead of private institutions, colleges and universities, houses of worship, civil society organizations, even some businesses demanding that their investments and their tax dollars not be spent on evil. Those people did not act alone. They joined together through various organizations to make their voices heard. You are not alone. We can do the same together. One phone call might not have an impact, but 10 phone calls can. One email may not get the attention of an elected official, but 50 can. Join those institutions and organizations that reflect your values and you can make your voice heard. The philosopher Hannah Arendt wrote, the sad truth of the matter is that most evil is done by people who never made up their minds to be or do either evil or good.
I'm going to repeat it because I thought it was really profound, but it took me about five times reading it to really let it sink in. The sad truth of the matter is that most evil is done by people who never made up their minds to be or do either evil or good. We all need to actively apply our ethical values to our daily lives, to the news, to our Washington community, and choose to do good. Only then will our government follow. Thank you. I said I was not Clark Urban, I didn't say who I am. Mark Kellerman, a member of the congregation. As you know, we now do a, a bit of Q&A. We have a question right here. Could you tell me uh, something about how you're run and how you're funded? Absolutely. The question was, who is my organization? How are we run? And it's a great question, how are we funded? And it's something I encourage everyone who's looking at nonprofits to dig in a little bit and figure out who the money is behind them. So many years ago, my organization decided to take a position that we would take who we took money from very seriously in terms of protecting our independence, even the perception of independence. So we take no money from the government, we take no money from corporations, and we take no money from unions. We take no money from any individual who has a financial interest in the outcome of our investigations. We also are unusual in that we have sort of bipartisan funding in terms of the family foundations that support us. So we have funding both from George Soros's foundation as well as Charles Koch's foundation. So it is a political range, but none of them have a financial interest in the outcome of our investigations. And I've been the executive director since 1993. I started as an intern. Could you elaborate a little? I think she wants more information than I do. The name of the organization, yes. where are you, and, and what are your... Yes, so we are, uh, the name of the organization is the Project on Government Oversight or POGO, pogo.org. We're here in Washington, and we are a nonprofit 501c3. As a lawyer, that might mean something to you. We also have a C4, although we haven't really had it being very active. What's your mission statement? Our mission is to advance a more ethical, accountable, and effective federal government. That's the, that's the short version of it. So we were created, as, as I mentioned, by Pentagon whistleblowers and expanded in 1990 to be looking at all the federal agencies. We only look at the federal government. We began our work working with insiders or whistleblowers. We continue to this day to have at our core working with those brave people who are inside the civil service and working around government to help make those agencies more effective. We spend a lot of time with Capitol Hill, both Democrats and Republicans, who care about making the government work better. And that's what we do. How do you select your issues? Yeah, that's a great question because the government's a big place. And so we have six sort of guidelines because we realized a few years ago we could only take on about 1% of the cases that actually come to us. We don't represent whistleblowers. There are other colleagues of ours that have nonprofit organizations or law firms that represent whistleblowers. Our actions are in advocacy for the legislation to protect the whistleblowers more broadly. So we, we're not a law firm, so we do not represent individuals in our work. Our, our focus is in uh, changing policy, and we will work with individuals who are whistleblowers if they need attorneys to get those attorneys external from our organization. But our work is to fix the underlying problem that those people are coming to us with. And so to, to answer the question that you were asking, we look at a range of issues. First is, uh, do we have that inside information that helps us 
reveal something that otherwise people wouldn't be aware of. We look for urgency of action. If that person is right, because we then do, we have a number of investigative journalists on our staff who do the investigations, sort of flesh out whether what we're hearing is accurate using documents always. So if it's true, does it really matter? Frankly, there's a lot of people who come to us with issues that in the long run, even if it's true, does it really impact people? Is it really sort of substantively important? And we also try to make sure that we are taking on issues where we have a unique voice because there are a lot of great organizations out there that are already doing great work, so we don't want to duplicate. Oh, and also we also uh, want to make sure that there's a way to fix the problem because part of our goal is not just to uncover a problem, but to then take it on with the policymakers in the Congress or at the agencies to actually fix those problems. Are you then a membership organization? Or? We have supporters, so individuals can sign up. Our website is, I have my card, but our website is www.pogo.org, O-R-G. It takes a person of a certain age to start laughing when they <laughs> I'm of that age, I am of that age. Um, but so, it's actually sort of a status, a membership organization is a legal status, which we are not that. But we do have, I think we're now at about 150,000 people who receive our information. So I'd in encourage you to join. Yeah. Uh, you did a great job of uh, mentioning all the numerous problems, but what specifically are you working on? In legislation or, or, or what? Well, right now, I mean, there's a lot of things happening. I have 40 people on my staff. So, but one thing, for example, that I've been recently working with Clark Irvin, your colleague in the congregation, about you may not know that he was uh, an inspector general at several agencies in previous administrations, both at the State Department and the Department of Homeland Security. So I've been working with Clark and I think it's about six other former inspectors general to help strengthen their capacity as independent watchdogs at the agencies to do their jobs better. A big part of what we do, in addition to our investigations, is help to strengthen the infrastructure of good government around the government. So we do trainings every month for congressional staff, always bipartisan, on how to do meaningful congressional oversight. That's one universe of work that we do. We're also working on this legislative package that Clark has helped with us on to yet again make sure inspectors general are not just independent, but that we're making sure that they're able to do the most important work. Because sometimes what's happened, the Congress is uh, required in IGs, is the acronym for inspectors general, to do a lot of different things, how many audits they've done. And what's happened now is it sort of burdened those offices to the point where they're doing a lot of make work but not necessarily the most important work, and we're trying to get those offices back to being more important for the general public and for the Congress. Yeah, when you gave your talk, you made a statement, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but you made a statement that the tendency to abuse power is universal. Now that's, kind of strikes me, you know, that that's an assumption that if you have power, you're going to ultimately abuse it. The tendency is there to, to overdo it. So, do you have a point in time when all of this started to go downhill? Okay, do we go back to, you know, <clears throat> George Washington and the Founding Fathers? Uh, do we go back to, you know, Richard Nixon? Sorry, Adam and Eve. Garden of Eden. I think that what yeah, you're pointing to is, yeah, no, I think your point is, I, I think that we don't disagree, maybe, that it's sort of human nature, 
mean, didn't Shakespeare say something about power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely? Was that Shakespeare? So the point is people are people. And so it's up to us to just help guide people towards their better angels because left to their own devices, power becomes dangerous. But in the 1990s, I was the chief of staff and deputy commissioner of the Immigration and Naturalization Service, the largest armed law enforcement agency in the federal government. Thank you for your service. No, that's fine. Well. I, I, when we were doubling the size of the U.S. Border Patrol, which is a huge issue, uh, we consulted with, you know, renowned ethicists across the United States at several different universities, the Air Force Academy, and so forth. And that was kind of ingrained in... Isn't that lovely? I mean, I, yeah. it makes me sort of almost teary. Well, I'm serious. Yeah. That's, what, that's what I would want from our... Well, it was, it, it was based upon experience. We saw what happened in the District of Columbia when they increased the size of the police force. Yeah. And so we said, how do we go about this? But it wasn't something like off the wall. People didn't look at it and say, oh, what a stupid thing to do. You know, uh, this is a wussy type of thing. We right. know how to grow a, you know, an armed or a law enforcement agency. And we were growing an agency that was going to be, you know, over 20,000 Border Patrol agents. <coughs> we had less than that, half of it. What era was this? Well, how, what this decade? was in uh, the late 90s and, uh, yeah. and, and and so all of a sudden, all that, we had an ethics lawyer. In fact, all the Justice Department agencies uh, and departments had a, a lawyer whose total focus was on ethics. Wow. And uh, that all seems to have been obliterated. You know? I mean, yeah. it, it's just, it seems to be gone. That, that type of inculcated uh, attitude uh, would disappear. So I don't have an answer to when that changed. I just agree with you that it has. Yeah. But your point makes it clear that it doesn't have to be that way because it was not very long ago that we had sort of different moral compass. Yeah, you know, I always encountered this during this rehabilitation. It seems to me, you use the word ethics, your speech was way too broad. I mean, opioids, guns, mm -hmm. defense department. And in the one sense it struck me, it said, don't demonize your opposition. If you make all these things, which I think are political issues, ethics issues, and you say, you're being unethical, and then you say, you're being evil, then that, all the conversation ends, we go to our separate quarters, we all sulk, you say they're bad, you say they're, they're bad. So I, I, think you, I don't think your organization does that, but your speech made it all seem like everything is ethical, or an ethical issue. I think that's overstated. No, I, I appreciate your critique. I knew that I would be pushing people possibly to uncomfortable places, which I'm, I'm not really uncomfortable, I just think you should hear it. Okay. Okay. I am sort of piggybacking on them. Uh, as a student of government, I, uh, a long time student of government, I guess I, a first reaction I have is, is, uh, is that I heard you really saying everything has gone hell in a handbasket, you know? Um, and what exactly did you say? Did you really say that, are you really imagining that every agency, every public servant, every, I mean? Not at all, no, so not at all. You said something in your speech that kind of suggested um, widespread abuse and corruption. 
And that is, uh, I think that's a questionable and very dangerous assumption to make. There are many very, very well-meaning Absolutely. Good servants out there attempting to do, and not just the whistleblowers. Oh, I know. We, we all know them, living in the city, working in the city. So how would you guide people who have this concern, this concern for a focus, for an understanding, you know, of, of, of what we might do that is meaningful and for the assumptions we hold and the implications thereof? I absolutely, and I'm very glad you're forcing clarification because I did not mean to suggest that everyone in public service is corrupt. I'm saying there are, in fact, the vast majority of the people that I work with in every part of fixing government are in government and care deeply about it. So that would be a real disservice to all those people who, I absolutely agree, the vast majority of people are doing, and I should add that point to make clear that is not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that there are many things that are legal that I would argue should not be. And that's sort of a different okay. point. But yeah. I thank you for clarifying that. We have time for two more questions in the very back and then here. And then if you have a final closing statement, I know we have to end about 10 till so close to 11 o'clock. So um, I'm an ethics attorney at a cabinet level department here in DC. Great. And so I just wanted to mention first of all, you know, there's uh, among sort of folks that do ethics in the federal government, there are things sometimes that we read in the paper and that we hear and that we know that causes know, extreme concern. I don't actually work at the secretary level, um, but I have read a lot of things in the paper um, and from folks that do not have the accurate facts. And as, a, as an ethics professional, one of the things we do is we say, here's what the law says. Right. And we also frequently will say, you know, you also have to consider the reasonable person's standard and whether or not an, an OGE put out, Office of Government Ethics put out something that said, you know, you need to be thinking about whether or not you should do it. Um, but I do feel like, uh, sometimes I feel like when people find out what I do, I get a lot of heat back. I had a couple of people come to me uh, a couple years ago and say, well, I want to ask this question. You know, there's a new administration. And I said, you know, the law, the rules, and I, I feel this way very strong. The rules did not change no. when the administration changes. Now, there are people who have chosen not to take the advice, and that's a real problem. Yeah. And there are times when people don't give all the facts to their ethics office. That's very, that's definitely happened in some of the more, uh, I'm, I'm actually have been talking to some of those poor ethics officers at those agencies where things got in the news that uh, the cabinet official claimed they'd gotten approval from the ethics officer, but in fact, they hadn't given the ethics officer the facts. And it was very unfair. We can't, we don't speak about all of the facts that come to us, but frequently when you read an ethics thing, and I find a lot of things I'm troubled by, uh, it's not all the facts. We have time for one more question. This My question was sort of coming back to what you were saying a little bit. You mentioned about, you know, there are, are you know, there are, areas where there aren't laws on the books, but I'm actually interested in areas where there are ethics laws or rules on the books like you have, and whether those laws are being enforced, whether people are accountable, and it's way too long to, you know, to, to answer right now, but the question is, can you, is there, is there any area that, you know, the, the people in this room can get involved to see that uh, the ethic law, ethics laws that are on the books 
are enforced. And I know Richard Painter, who I love, uh, sort of basically threw up his hand, I believe, and basically resigned. No, no, oh, that was uh, Walter Schaub. Oh, sorry, Richard. Um, sorry, I love him too. So, I love them both, yes. So my question is, you know, what about enforcing laws on I think that's essential, and I think the point that the woman in the back was making is part of what we need to be doing is strengthening those institutions, giving them a little bit more power. One of the things that I forget who was talking about, what oh, you were asking about, what are we working on? I'm very much looking forward to working in a bipartisan way. Even in this end of this Congress, there's interest from Senator Johnson, who's the Republican chairman in the Senate, as well as now it's a, a new Republican ranking, and on the House side as well, on strengthening the Office of Government Ethics, the OGE, which was referenced in the back. They are hobbled in some ways by the legislation that allows them to give opinions, but they're very limited in what they can do. And that's something that we've been able to get sort of common ground, that this is where we need to sort of strengthen the enforcement offices to enforce the laws that are already there. So that's something we're really excited about starting to work on right now, actually. Please join me in thanking Ms. Price.